we are going to get started with week three of this uh, module we're working through, who we are. Um, just give me a second here. Didn't think I was being that violent. All right, uh, and we have, uh, we've been going a little slower through some material than I expected, and yet it's been really cool seeing that um, some of the things we've touched on were things we probably were going to touch on later anyways or would have wanted to. So we're rearranging some material on the fly, but I think it's, it's working out uh, just great. And, and I think ultimately the things that we are going a little bit more slowly through are things that are really worth going more slowly through. This is really important stuff. Um, and so last week we looked at the history and theology of, of what time period did, did we look at last week? Anyone shout it out? You all, got your, you all got coffee and muffins in your mouth. That's the problem. I heard someone whisper Reformation. That's right. We looked at the history and theology of the Reformation. You, you have to look at the, the theology with the history. You have to look at the ideas with the events. Um, and that's true throughout all of church history. And that's going to be what we, what we look at today as well as we look at the, at the Anabaptist and then the Baptist movements. <clears throat> But just really want to pick up on what we talked about last week uh, at the end and want to just pick up and just emphasize that is that uh, the Reformation was not a golden era. And we need to stress that because of the way that some people today talk about the Reformation. And, 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 uh, and it, what I'm not downplaying here is the great uh, accomplishments of the Reformation. I would consider myself a Reformational Christian. Um, I, I'm, a, I'm a, a strong Protestant. Protestant's another word kind of that came out of the, we call it the Protestant Reformation. Uh, because uh, they were protesting, and, and there's a there's a specific moment in the Lutheran movement when that word uh, became associated with them, um, and and uh, and yet I think we need to acknowledge that the reformers made mistakes in some of the things that they did, some of the things they said, and even some of the things that they believed, and we have to we have to be free to be able to to, to say that and talk about them, and and even though I so appreciate the theology of the Reformation, I I think, and I, I suggested this at the end of last week that. It's a mistake if we pick any point in history and point to the, the creed or confession that that particular group of Christians formulated and said that particular document perfectly sums up all of God's truth for all time and it can never be improved upon. Okay, so that's, that's, I'm, I'm explaining my struggle here with some uh, Reformational Reformed Christians today who often you'll see this with the, the Westminster Confession of Faith. They'll say, that's it, and it's good enough for all Christians for all time. And, and it can't be improved on. And uh, I'm just, I'm not so sure about that. And the reason I would say that is that creeds and confessions are written by who? They're, they're written by people. They're not written by God. And, and so and they're, they're the product of people who, who um, may or may not and, and likely may not perfectly understand everything at any moment. One of the other things that's really important about historical creeds and confessions is that they are always the product of a particular moment in history. Um, and, and here's what I mean by that. The early church uh, wrote many of their creeds and confessions as particular doctrines were being attacked. So, for example, if you look at the early ecumenical, they're called ecumenical because Catholics, Protestants, Orthodox all hold to them. The early ecumenical creeds, like the Apostles' Creed, the, the Nicene Creed, the Athanasian Creed, what do they really, really stress? What, what, what's something that they really, really emphasize? Jesus. 
Anyone have any suggestions or ideas? What they really, really stress, emphasize, clarify, go into great detail often, uh, in, in the case of some of those creeds, the Athanasian in particular, is the deity of Jesus, the deity of Christ, the nature of the Trinity. Why is that? Well, that's because that was the doctrine that was coming under attack in that day from the Arians. The Arians were saying Jesus is just a created being. Basically, they were like JWs, I mean, not entirely, but in that particular issue, that was uh, something we could compare compare it to. Um, and they said Jesus is just a created being. He was the firstborn of creation, which means he was the first thing that God created. He's not, he's not God. And so because that idea was coming under so much attack, the Christians said, we got to clarify this. And so they, they did that, and they did a very good job of that. But for example, in, if you read most of those early creeds and confessions for the first few hundred years of the church, what do they not talk about? So for example, think of the Apostles' Creed, which we sing here regularly in, when we sing the song, This I Believe. And we do that on purpose. The Apostles' Creed is a, is, is a major, it, it sums up a lot of the major foundation pieces in our faith. Very important. What does the Apostles' Creed not talk about? You may, you may have not thought about this before, so maybe you're going through your head right now. I believe in God the Father, and you're going through it. What does the Apostles' Creed not talk about? It doesn't talk, well, say, say it louder. It doesn't talk about the Bible at all. It also uh, only, um, it does not very specifically talk about justification by faith alone. Now, it's not because the early Christians didn't believe in those things. It's rather that what? Everybody believed in those things back then. Even the, the, the heretics, the Arians, they believed in the authority of Scripture. They were making all their arguments based on the authority of Scripture. So it wasn't, they, they, they didn't have to say anything about the Bible because everybody believed in the Bible. And we could say the same thing about justification by faith and, and so on. And so as time went on, though, as doctrines came under attack, so if you, underst- if you understand this, you're understanding something very, very important about, about the theology of the church. As doctrines came under attack, then they had to clarify what we believe about them. So very often, very often, the, the heretics, or, or if we don't even say heretics, we can say the, the dissenters would make the first move. We saw that with the uh, with Arminius in the after effects of the of the Reformation. Now, Arminius is not a heretic. Arminians are not heretics. But the idea is that the dissenters went first, and then the 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 established church had to say, "Okay, no, we don't believe that. Here's what we do believe." That's a pattern that goes all throughout all throughout history. And so here's here's one of the problems is is that uh, one of the problems with historical theology. That, that people can, can make, one of the mistakes they can make is if they say, we're going to pick this point in time and we're going to s- stick by that creed and confession. Well, what you're basically saying is that any other issue that ever comes up, we're not going to bother to address. That's a big problem you see in people who will talk about the great tradition, which is all those early ecumenical councils and, and creeds, and they'll say, no, that's what we're standing on, that's our basis of unity. Um, and so um, it, it actually becomes a way of, of kind of sweeping under the rug all kinds of issues that have become issues since then. Oh, well, justification by faith. Oh, the authority of Scripture. I mean, well, whatever. We're just going to stick with the early creeds and confessions. As if those Christians had a crystal ball to see every issue that would ever be an issue. You, you see what I'm saying? Um, so 
At the same time, though, and this is so important, at the same time, I'm not saying that we can ignore the historical creeds and confessions. We need to realize that we're a part of, of a global historic movement of God called the, the church that includes all of these important documents and, and works that people have done. And we need to engage with them and, be, and, and converse with them. I just read this quote this week by Nick Needham. He's written a, now I think it's a five-part series on church history that just looks fantastic. I, um, I'd love to read it um, and get it for a library here. It's, it looks like it's very readable. Uh, he says, one of the greatest blessings of church history is the satisfaction of discovering that others have already said, and far better, what one has been spluttering and mumbling about. So you get what he's saying. If you go back through church history, you read some of those, you go, oh yeah, they said it so well. And we need to be able to do that. But no one group of Christians, including us, has ever fully arrived in our understanding. I think we always need to be willing to add new clarity to our, to our, our, our statements of faith. So last thing I'll say on this, which is really important, is, is that... There are people who try to cut loose from historic creeds and confessions because they want to go soft. They want to be able to believe uh, things that are quote-unquote progressive. Um, and, uh, and, and it reminds me of, of the comment in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader where they t- the guy talks about progression. And uh, Caspian says, uh, we've seen that in Narnia in an egg, and we call it going bad. Uh, that's, that, you know, so th- this idea of, of, of wanting to get more progressive is really about, about, about rotting um, and getting, getting worse. And that's not what this is about. Rather, what I'm saying is we need to have the freedom to get more precise <clears throat> than, than some of the creeds and confessions, if needs be, to get more specific about what we believe, not less this is not about going soft. This is about being willing to be more precise. And, um, and as you know, we've been through some of this recently uh, with the, the conference that we were a part of when their stance was, if it's not in our affirmation of faith, we're not going to talk about it. As if the people who wrote that affirmation of faith had thought of absolutely everything. And, and our perspective was, um, actually, there's some things that aren't in the affirmation of faith that, that we really do um, think are very important. So, all that being said, um, we, I guess one way of summing up what I'm talking about here is actually a very reformational idea. There's this Latin phrase, again, it was all um, so many wonderful Latin phrases with the Reformation, but the one great phrase, um, reformata et semper reformanda, which is reformed and always reforming. And, and that is this idea that, that, that we never want to stay stuck, which is, it's sad to see many modern day disciples of, of the Reformation have, have sort of seemed to st- sort of stay stuck. Um, and, and no, we need to be always reforming. And the group that I believe did that the best is the Baptist movement. Um, I'm biased. I'm a Baptist, but you're going to hear me present a, uh, not just a, a history today, but a case for why I think we really need to pay attention. But before we do that, we just want to touch on the Radical Reformation, um, which is uh, connected to the Anabaptist movement. So most of the, this, this is just a fact, most of the early Reformed churches were largely connected to political authority and political power. Uh, you had the, uh, the, the Lutheran church connected to the German um, the German political structure. Uh, you think of the Dutch Reformed Church and, and the, the, uh, the, the government there, and that, that went on for quite some time. Um, 
there's, there's so many different, you know, we've looked at the Church of England, which was, is a really clear example of this. Um, and almost all of the reformers had no problem with this. They thought that it was the job of the government to, to uphold Christianity. And they, this, so remember, this goes all the way back to who? Who was the first Roman emperor who sort of made Christianity legitimate and convened the first ecumenical council? Council of Nicaea is Constantine, right? Emperors had had their fingers in the church for, for centuries. And, and at the time of the Reformation, they didn't see any problem with that. Um, so, for example, when you talk about Calvin, one of the things that people will often complain about is how Calvin supported the burning of Servetus, who was was a heretic, and yet Calvin said we should burn Servetus, we should, and and and, and, and uh, supported his execution, as if Calvin was this monster who's just like, ha, ah, let's burn people who disagree with me. Okay, here's the thing: every reformer thought that it was the job of the state to punish heretics which included condemning them to death. So was Calvin wrong? Yes, but was, so was everybody else. This was a blind spot, a major blind spot in the, in the time of the Reformation. And so the radical Reformation it really separated from this. And this is where the Anabaptist movement came in. They're called Anabaptists because they believed in being baptized again, right? At which which uh, had to do with the fact that they believed in, in that baptism was for those who made a profession of faith as adults. And, um, and, and so there were some really good ideas in the Anabaptist movement. Um, the, 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 the reality is, though, the Anabaptist movement was very diverse, and in its... Um, they, they really, one of the other really good things that they saw was that this whole association of church and state was not good. And so the Anabaptists separated from that. Um, and so that was another really positive contribution that they made. Um, unfortunately, some went too far and they, um, they overreacted to many aspects of the Reformation, aspects they shouldn't have. So it's surprising to, to, for some modern-day Mennonites to know that some of, the, uh, some of the, the key figures or some of the, the, the prominent figures at certain points in the early Anabaptist movement were what we would consider heretics. Like, they denied the divinity of Jesus. They were Arians. They, they denied the Trinity. Uh, they taught that, and this is an idea that persists in some uh, old colony Mennonite circles to this day, that, you know, having assurance of your salvation is something that you can't have. You, you know, it's almost this very Muslim idea that you, you, you hope you're going to be saved by God, but you can never know for sure in this life. Um, and so the, the, the Anabaptist movement um, is incredibly diverse. Um, and, and part of the reason for that is that it was largely, in its early stages, a reactionary movement, a reaction, reacting to the mainline magisterial reformers. Um, one of the other facts of of the history here of the Anabaptist movement is that they didn't really produce a lot of theology themselves. So the, they, they, there are not much, many, if, if any, um, significant uh, early uh, Anabaptist creeds and confessions and statements of, of doctrine like that. Because they just didn't make them. Because, um, I mean, one, one explanation for that is, well, they associated that kind of thing with the, the mainline reformers, and they didn't want to have anything to do with that. Um, and so that, that's part of why there's a really divergent spread within the Anabaptist movement to this present day. So you think of modern-day descendants of the Anabaptists. You've got guys like Bruxy Cavey in Toronto, who's, who's part of the, 
uh, what used to be called uh, Brethren in Christ, um, an Anabaptist, sort of a, a spinoff from a Mennonite group, and and he's a guy that you cannot pin down on any doctrine whatsoever. I mean, now he's out of ministry because of sexual misconduct, but... Um, you know, he'll say, I believe in the inspired and errant word of God and his name is Jesus. And you say, well, okay, like, what do you actually believe about the Bible? And he'll just sort of blah, blah, and say things. But that's partially because he's coming from a tradition that never really nailed down what it actually believes about those things. Um, some of the other modern day descendants of the Anabaptist movement would be the Hutterites, the Amish. Um, and some of you in this room, <laughs> which you can see that quite a quite a divergent spread. Um, now, many modern day Mennonites, including those of you who would be in this room, have stepped into the evangelical movement. And it was really interesting in a church history class I took, looking at how that happened at different points and at different stages. Um, for for some of the, we learned that some of the forebears of the Mennonite Brethren uh, Conference um, stepped and became evangelical while they were. In, uh, in in Ukraine, actually, if I'm if I'm remembering that right, it was in one of the places in Europe on the the pilgrimages that that many of the or the sojourns that many of the the Mennonites went on, as so many of you know. And uh, for for many of them, though, it was it was coming to Canada and and being exposed to the evangelical understanding of the gospel, justification by faith. You could have assurance of salvation by believing in Jesus and. And, and so many modern-day uh, descendants of the Anabaptists have stepped into evangelicalism, which, as, as we're going to see, is, is more in line with, with the, main, the, the main descendants of, of the Reformation. Um, again, we can say descendants of the Reformation, or we can just say more like what the Bible actually says. And, and those are two ways of looking at that. Um, there, there's a lot more I could say. Um, Mennonite Anabaptist history is fascinating and has all kinds of tendrils to it. But um, these days, uh, many, many Mennonites are, are fully evangelical, and that's something that we should praise God for. Now let's talk about the Baptist movement. Um, some trace the Baptist movement to the Anabaptist movement. Uh, after all, they both have the word Baptist in it. Um, but uh, that's sort of like tracing the Baptist movement to John the Baptist, okay? Which would be tempting and kind of cool, but it's not. There's no connection there, right? Um, there was some early cross pollination where one of the early Baptist leaders, John Smith, um, spent some time in Amsterdam and and did. Uh, was a part of, for a time, I think about a period of about three years, was a part of an Anabaptist church there. So there was some, you know what I mean by cross-pollination, there was some, some, some exchange of ideas. But, but that's not, the, 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 what we see is that the Baptist movement did not arise from the Anabaptist movement. It actually arose out of the Puritan movement. So Puritan is one of those words that most of us misunderstand because it's often used as a negative word, like, oh, you're such a Puritan or Puritanical rules or, or whatever, you know? Um, Puritans, I've heard, are, some people joke that they're the people that are afraid that somewhere, somehow, somebody might be having fun, and, and, and that's, that's something they want to stop. Uh, here's actually a better way to understand the Puritan movement. The Puritan movement arose within the, the Church of England, so we're talking. We're, we're now in, we're in England, the Anglican Church, in the late 1500s, the early 1600s, and they were a group that was seeking to reform and purify the Church of England, particularly by getting rid of any remaining Catholic elements. So you, 
we talked about this last week, how the Church of England had all this kind of weird back and forth, depending on who was the ruler and who was in charge, and you had this mix of Reformed and Catholic stuff bouncing around. And the Puritans said, we want a clean shop, we want to, we want to make a pure church. So you get where the word pure Puritan comes in. Um, and they, one of the things with the Puritans is they were not afraid of using political power, military power. Oliver Cromwell, Puritan leader, raised an army, ruled, uh, some would say, as a dictator for, for a period of time. Um, the Puritans wanted to force the church to, to, to be pure and to be reformed. Now, the early Baptist leaders started off, at least some, several of the significant ones, started off as Puritans. And some would say that they deviated. From our perspective, we would say that they applied this question of a, of a or this, this, this mission of a pure biblical church, and they just applied it consistently. They read the Bible. One of the convictions they came to is that Actually, if you read the Bible, this whole business of baptizing babies just isn't there. Baptism is for professing believers. Uh, one of the other things that they applied it to was the question of what is a church? Okay, In the state church model, so in the state church, Lutherans, Anglicans, who's the church? Well, it's everybody who lives in a certain area. That's what a church is. Because they're all baptized as babies, and they're part of that parish, and that's who the church is. And the church is a mix of believers and unbelievers, which tends to create this problem of nominalism. And nominalism has to do with the word name, and, and what it means is that you're a Christian in name and name alone. That's, that's what... Um, uh, that, that is one of, one of the major reasons, uh, I shouldn't say a reason, I say that's one of the major negative effects of the practice of infant baptism, is it creates a whole bunch of people who think they're good because they were baptized as babies. And um, my grandparents grew up in that, in the Dutch Reformed Church in, in the Netherlands. Everybody was baptized. Everybody was a Christian because you were all baptized. And it was just this automatic thing. You, you, you went to the closest church to wherever you lived and everybody went there. And, uh, and, and in, not so much in the Dutch reform system, but in other systems that were more sacramental, you know, you could live like a devil the rest of the week. And yet on Sunday, you'd go to church and you'd get your sacrament, you'd get your little bit of Jesus in, in the bread and the cup, and you'd be good for another week. And, and, it's this, uh, and, and it tends to create nominalism. People say, sure, I'm a Christian, but it doesn't impact anything in their faith, um, in their life. Um, and, and you've got all kinds of people who just frankly are not born again and yet think they're good. And so the, 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 the early Baptists, as they're studying the scripture, said that's not what a church is. A church isn't just everybody who lives in a certain area. A church is a gathering of believers, which... You might hear that and just be like, well, duh, but that wasn't duh to them. That was a, that was a brand new idea. That, that's what a church is, is a, is a gathering of people who actually believe in Jesus, uh, who have been saved and baptized, and, 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 that, and that, that was a, that was a, a, a revolutionary idea. Um, so, so the Baptists saw the church as a free association. So not like, again, under the state church thing, you were registered to be a part of this church if you happened to live in that area. Now, if you didn't come, you'd get in trouble. It was this, or you could get in trouble, or maybe not, depending how lax or lenient things were. The Baptists said, no, no, a church is a free association. If you're, if you're a Christian and you want to be a part of this, you can. But th- that's what, it's just a, it's a, it's a free thing. And we're responsible to Christ alone instead of to the government. 
And, um, and so over the next 200 years, the Baptist movement grew and grew and grew, often in places where the, the established church had become stagnant. It's one of the really um, sad things. That's why, that's why we can't have stars in our eyes about the Reformation. In many places, the fruit of the Reformation within a century or two was widespread nominal churches full of dead people who thought they were Christians because they had been baptized as babies and they had all the right doctrine and no one was being called to believe in the Lord Jesus to, um, for salvation, to be born again and, and they were just dead and, and, and they were ripe for the enlightenment and liberalism to come and chew them all up, which is what happened. But, um, but the Baptist movement grew in places like that um, and, and, uh, and because the question for Baptists wasn't, well, you were baptized as a baby and you live here, so you're part of this church, right? No, the question was, do you believe? Do you believe in Jesus? Have, have you been saved? Um, Baptist theology emphasized personal faith and accountability to the Lord. The Baptist movement often went hand in hand with other movements like pietism. Pietism was a movement that came within Lutheranism in, in, in Germany. And, and many of the pietists stayed a part of the Lutheran system. But the pietists uh, were reacting to this nominalism and the pietists were saying, no, we need to read the Bible on our own, not just have the guy read it for us on Sunday. We need to be getting together for prayer meetings. And, and they cultivated this warm personal faith. Uh, some of those things that we, we believe about personal faith in Jesus and all that the pietists really emphasized. Now, the Baptists and the pietists, you can see that there's some overlap there, Right. And so um, in certain parts of the world, so for example in Sweden, this happened where a lot of these Lutheran pietists uh, became Baptists. Because what happened? What, what did the pietists emphasize? Reading the Bible for yourself. What happens as you read the Bible for yourself? You start to figure out, whoa, uh, our state church has got some things pretty messed up. And so, now, uh, a Lutheran would disagree with what I'm about to say. An Anglican would disagree with what I'm about to say. But from our perspective, we can see the Baptist movement grew as people read the Bible for themselves and got saved. Out of the state churches. Okay? Um, and um, now I know that's oversimplified, but, but uh, those were some of the, the really key, key elements there. Here's what's important, though. Here's what's really important. The Baptists did not throw the baby with the bathwater especially those early Baptists. Here's an example of this. Um, in 1644, uh, a group of English Baptists in London produced a major confession of faith, the, the first London Baptist confession of faith. They didn't think it was the first. They just called it the London Baptist confession of faith. It's a beautiful document, words some things really well. It's, uh, it's, 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 an, it's an awesome confession of faith. Here's what happened, though. After that, a group of Christians, uh, Christian leaders, church leaders, um, got together, um, largely from the Puritan movement, and, and, and wrote the Westminster Confession of Faith. Now, it's very interesting. If you read the history, the Westminster Confession of Faith actually had quite a political motivation behind it. And I'm not going to get into all of that. It's fascinating. Just even on, if you go to Wikipedia, you can find some really interesting stuff about, about this. Um, the Westminster Confession of Faith brought together uh, these leaders from some, some different, uh, different persuasions. You had some who were convinced they needed to stay in the Church of England and make it pure. You had some who wanted to establish new churches that had a better structure. So you had separatists, you had, you had these different factions. And yet together, over the course of, of, of quite a period of time, 
they hammered out this, this quite substantial confession of faith. Now, I know so far I've criticized people who stay stuck on the Westminster Confession. I would just as quickly criticize people who ignore the Westminster Confession. It's a really important document. And, and the, the Baptists saw how this Westminster Confession had had such a uniting effect, bringing together some of these different factions of Christians. And they said, we want to be a part of that without sacrificing our beliefs. And so they, a group, came up with, in 1689, the second London Baptist Confession of Faith, which is basically the Westminster Confession with a few points tweaked to reflect Baptist doctrine. So they tweaked some of the statements, particularly about baptism, to make it more more amenable. But as much as possible, they had it be in substantial agreement with the Westminster Confession. Why? So that they could say, hey guys, we believe a whole lot of the same stuff as you. We've got some differences, but we, we also have a lot of overlap. Here's what I'm trying to show by talking about this history here. From the, early, the earliest days of the, of the Baptist movement, they understood themselves as a part of global historic Christianity. They saw themselves, at maybe, uh, we can see them, I don't know how, to what extent this is statement is true, they saw themselves, but we can see the Baptist movement as a renewal movement within global historic Christianity. They saw that they had, a, they had some important contributions to make, such as critiquing the established church's doctrines of baptism, of the church, and a few others that we're going to get to. But they also saw that they had a lot to gain from the, the, those other churches, in, such as, you know, the, the Westminster Confession. They benefited from all that work. They saw themselves as heirs of the Reformation. They were a part of this bigger family. They had separate churches. They had Baptist churches because of their doctrine of what the church is. And yet, they were not uh, separatist. You know what I mean by separatist? Or it's basically like, we're the only ones who have ever figured out anything right and stay away from us, all you crazy bonkers people. We're not going to listen to you. So the, 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 those early Baptists had this really, um, had, had figured out this really important balance that I think is so important for us at Emmanuel Baptist Church at this point in our history to, to really grasp. Being able to see we are a part of something bigger. We are heirs to this larger work of God throughout history. We also think we have something important to contribute. And, and we, we see some things different, but we see some things the same. Where we can stand with you, we will. Where we can't, we're going to have to stand by ourselves, but not in more things than we need to. And not because we think we're the only ones who have ever figured out anything right. So do you see that, that, that beautiful balance uh, as, as Baptists understood themselves, and as I understand the Baptists, as a, as a renewal movement making an important contribution to historic Christianity? but not thinking that they're the only ones who'd ever figured out anything and, and that and they wanted, to, they wanted to still be a part of, of historic Christianity. So um, the Baptist movement had its roots in the Puritan movement, which had its roots in the Reformation, which had its roots in the patristic era, the Church Fathers, which had its roots in, the, in Jesus and the Apostles. And, uh, and although Baptists separated from the state church to establish their own churches, they were not militant separatists. Sadly, when many of us think about Baptists, we think of modern independent fundamentalist Baptists who will separate um, over 
the tiniest things. Okay, there's a joke, right? A guy's walking home on, uh, and there's a uh, crossing a bridge, and there's a guy about to jump into the water, and he says, "Whoa, brother, don't don't end your life. Uh, do you know the Lord? Yeah, I do know the Lord. Oh, you do. Uh, are you a Catholic or a Protestant? I'm a Protestant. Oh, you are. Me too. Are you a Baptist or a Presbyterian? And guy says, "I'm a Baptist. Oh, me too." Do you hold the 1644 confession or the 1689 confession? And the guy on the bridge goes, 1644? And the first guy pushes him in and says, die, heretic. Okay, so that, that's, a, that's a, a joke about uh, that sort of pokes at, at some Baptists having the... Um, not many of you laughed there. It's supposed to be funny. Anyways, um, uh, it, it, that, that, joke, that joke pokes fun at how some Baptists have become separatistic and are kind of looking for any excuse to separate. Um, and that's just, that's just not true. Um, uh, historically, Baptists have, have, have not been that way. Um, if you look at some of the different Baptist movements and churches and denominations, it's not because they were just splitting willy-nilly. It's often because of different ethnic backgrounds. So, for example, there's the BGC because that, uh, that came from... Um, from a Swedish movement that was speaking Swedish up till the 30s. The North American Baptists uh, come from a German movement. Um, the Southern Baptists come from, uh, obviously, the Southern states, and there's some historical stuff there. And so um, many of these different Baptist groups aren't because Baptists are just looking for every excuse they can to separate from each other. There are some like that. You know, There are some who call themselves Baptists who... who you know, will separate over the color of the carpet. But, but historically, they've been far more... Catholic, small C Catholic. You know what I mean by small C Catholic, right? They see themselves as a part of the global church. Unique perspective, something to give, but also something something to keep. So what we're going to do here now, we're going to switch gears and we're going to get started today and we're going to finish up next week by talking more specifically about some of the Baptist distinctives. Uh, what is distinct about Baptist theology? I've just talked a little bit about the history. Now we're going to talk about some of the ideas. Before I do that, I'm going to take a breather and ask, does anyone have any questions so far about this little historical overview? Before we start talking about some of these ideas, any questions? I have a lot of Amish friends down in the States, so down Baptist, I guess, is what they would have come up with. Um, their their um, take on things is that they, the reason that they ended up in their colonies that they are in the States is because of persecution. Mm-hmm. Well, particularly in the Anabaptist movement, absolutely. A lot of the, um, like the Anabaptists were heavily persecuted from a very early time. Uh, I mean, even as far back as the days of Luther, they were they were being persecuted and, and unfairly so. And uh, and. And I mean, you think of all the historical migrations of of, uh, of Anabaptist Mennonites through Europe and through Ukraine and Russia and Germany, and, and so much of that was because they were getting kicked out of their countries and being heavily persecuted. So, so absolutely, that that's a huge factor. That that uh, so in the Anabaptist movement, def, definitely so. Persecution has had a, a factor in uh, in in shaping and defining that 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 community. Yeah. We were a couple of very few Englishers that were actually invited to join in their church service. That must have been something. Really interesting. That would have been, yeah. Wow. Yeah, um, and, and please hear uh, um, uh, 
yeah, I think that's all I'll say. Man, we could spend a whole other class and a half talking about the Anabaptist movement and some of the common ground that we might share with Hutterites, for example, uh, and also some of the places where we might deviate from them. But uh, it's very, very interesting. Um, Let's talk about some important Baptist distinctives. Um, There's a few here. I've made a list of one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. And, and actually, there's a little acronym here. Uh, I think, um, uh, was, it, was it Stanley Grenz who wrote a book called The Baptist Congregation and, and uh, has it based on, the, on an acronym with the word Baptist? Um, we're not going to do that because um, I think you have to kind of force it, but we're just going to talk about seven key distinctives of, of Baptist theology uh, starting today, and then we'll pick up on this next week, whatever we don't get to. The first has to do with biblical authority. Um, Baptists have uh, been referred to as people of the book. What's the book? The book's the Bible, right? No, no question about that. Um, one, of the distinct, one of the distinctives from the early days of the Baptist movement onwards is, uh, is their uh, insistence on the authority of Scripture, and that if the Bible says it, that's what we're going to do. And, and the Bible and the Bible alone shaping what they believed and what they did. Now that's where, as Baptists, we can be like, like, I sort of like, I don't like using the word Baptist as much as I have to. I wish I could just say biblical. Because that's, that, from, from my perspective, from our perspective, that's just kind of what we're doing. We're just reading the Bible and seeing what's there. However, out of, out of respect for the fact that there are other traditions who think that they are biblical... We'll use the word Baptist to sort of differentiate what we think and what we believe. Um, but, but the Baptists were, from the early, earliest times, were, were uh, a people of the book. Reading the Bible, applying the Bible, following the Bible. Um, now, this can have, uh, this, can, this idea can go too far. And, and, and some who carried it too far had this phrase, no creed but the Bible. Uh, some of you have maybe heard that before. So, so some of these Baptists, uh, and, and this shows up in other traditions too, would say, no, we don't need creeds confessions. Forget what the, they wrote in Westminster. Forget about all that stuff. We just need the Bible. Well, um, no creed but the Bible uh, is a creed. And it actually, there's some, there's some interesting assumptions there about no creed but the Bible. And, and you, no creed but the Bible can't, can't, uh, be sustainable. So, for example, if someone says, I have no creed but the Bible, no confession of faith, no standard of faith, just the Bible, say, okay, so what do you believe about Jesus? How long are they going to be able to go without having to say something that you're like, well, that's your creed right there? Like, every, everybody has a creed, okay? Um, and so, like we've seen here, the early Baptists paid attention to creeds and confessions, um, but they understood creeds and confessions are here, the Bible is here, and if the Bible critiques our creeds and confessions, we're going to change to align ourselves with the Bible. The Bible is the sole authority that has been a, a huge contribution um, to, that, that, the, that the Baptists have made. Um, now, it's interesting, again, how, how in some Baptist churches, it very much, the way they do things, very much can get shaped by tradition. Um, which is kind of ironic because the whole thing is supposed to be that we just do what the Bible says. Um, and yet in many Baptist churches, you'll hear, well, this is the way we've always done things. Uh, do you think that that's ever been a thing here at EBC? Well, this is the way we do things because this is the way we've always done things. 
well, that's different. Well, that's not the way we used to do things. Absolutely. So Baptists can get hung up on tradition as much as anybody else. But one of the core convictions of Baptist doctrine uh, has been, let's just do what the Bible says. Okay. So biblical authority has been really, really important. Uh, secondly, um, baptism on personal faith and salvation as opposed to baptizing babies. Um, that is where the word comes from. Okay, this is why we're called why we're called Baptists because of this this, this real um, insistence that we share with with the Anabaptists that that nowhere in the Bible do we see baptism being applied to babies and and that baptism everywhere in the Bible is is practiced by those who have faith in in Jesus and baptism is the sign of the new covenant. Now, now we can look at the the, the reformed the reformers like the Presbyterians, for example. Um, different reform groups have different understandings. But the Presbyterians would say, um, "Hey, Abraham circumcises his kids. Uh, that sign of the covenant is now baptism. So we should baptize our kids." And 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 in. Uh, in in the past, some Baptists have not responded very well to that. Some Baptists have have basically just said, "Well, uh, we don't ever see that in the Bible, and that's it," and haven't been very sophisticated. Um, in past decades, Baptists have gotten a little bit sharper with this kind of stuff and have have said, "Okay, okay, so you think bap- we we agree baptism is a sign of the new covenant? Uh, what is different between the new covenant and the old covenant?" In the Old Covenant, every child got the sign of the covenant, whether they were in the covenant or not. We're talking about this this morning. God said, I will establish my covenant with Isaac, not Ishmael. Both of them got the sign of the covenant. In the Old Covenant, you had this mix of people, some of whom believed in Yahweh, some of who didn't. And yet they all got the sign of the covenant. They were all a part of the covenant community, even though not all of them actually were children of the promise, were children who believed in God's promises. The new covenant is different, very different. And it's there in the promise in Jeremiah 31 when, when, when God says that um, in the new covenant, no longer will one man say to his neighbor, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least to the greatest. That's what makes the new covenant new. Is that, every, is that every member of the new covenant actually knows God and has been saved. And so, um, and so, we, so that, that was what I talked about last week with covenant theology. Now, covenant theology doesn't mean you believe in covenants because every Christian would then be covenant theology. But covenant theology is this reformed idea that, you know, it's sort of the Abrahamic covenant is pretty much the same covenant we're in now. And we, there's just a few little things that have been tweaked like Jesus coming and circumcision got swapped out for baptism. And Baptists have, have, have uh, been more prone to say, no, 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 the new covenant was really, it's a new covenant. And one of the big differences is that um, members of the new covenant, it's not just this mixed community of everybody who lives in a certain place. It's those who actually know the Lord. Um, and that gets into the composition of a church. And we're going we're gonna to go here for like one more minute and we're going to pick up on this next week. But one of the, the key Baptist distinctives early on that caused them to separate and start their own churches is this understanding that a church is a free association 
of baptized believers who have chosen to covenant together to be the church together. This is why church membership matters so much to Baptists. It's not just because we like talking about it so we can get our, get our hooks into people. It's that in the Baptist understanding, what makes a local church a church is a group of baptized believers coming to an agreement together about what is the gospel, who is Jesus, are you saved? And that agreement together to, of a group of baptized believers to be the church together, that is what makes a church a church. So it's not just anyone in a certain area, it's not just whoever shows up, but it's that it's a group of covenanted believers. That's what makes a church a church. And, and, um, and that's why Baptists have, have so emphasized that covenant of, of a group of people promising each other. We're going to believe certain things. We're going to stay faithful to each other. We're going to hold each other accountable. Because that's what makes a church a church. And um, that's, that's our third. I might pick up on that a little bit more next week as we talk about some of the other Baptist distinctives like the autonomy of the local church, uh, Congregational church government, uh, priesthood of all believers, elders and deacons, and so some of those things we will touch on next week. Uh, I probably have time for one or two questions before we end here. Anyone want to fire one or two off before we wrap up? Okay. Your uh, thinkers are thinking, and that's good. I, uh, and I encourage you to keep doing that. If you've got questions, fire them off to me throughout the week. And uh, uh, Lord willing, next week and, and the week after, we'll maybe have some more time for some kind of questions off the floor. So, so please bring them. And uh, I hope that this has been, been a helpful overview to you for further helping you understand who we are and, and where we fit in the bigger, bigger family of God. Uh, let me pray to, to ask for God's help as we, as we finish up here, and then, uh, then that'll be it. Lord, we, we thank you for, for as, the, as that one book I read this week, Lord, said, 2,000 years of Christ's power. That's what's really going on in church history here. 2,000 years, Lord Jesus, of you leading and ruling your church from heaven and through your spirit, and we're privileged to be a part of it. And Lord, we can see how different groups and movements within, uh, over this period of time, have had some really important things to contribute and say and add, and and how and how your body has helped itself um, get to a, a more and more pure and mature place. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to never stop that process of ever being willing to reform our ideas and our practices in light of your word. God, that your word and your word alone would be our final authority our, and, and we would see it as being completely sufficient for all that we would need for life and godliness. And that if your word ever corrects us, that we won't stick to saying, well, this is what we've always done. But Lord, that with open hands, we would say, yes, Lord, whatever you want to say to us in your word, we will adjust and, and change because we don't want to tell you the way that it is. We want you in your word to tell us the way that it is. So Lord, we thank you for, for what we're learning and we pray that it would stir us up to be ever vigilant, uh, to be the kind of church described in your word and to be faithful to you and you alone in that regard. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
Okay, thanks everyone. Again, I'd love to see your questions. Feel free to text, email, and uh, yeah, we'll get back into some of this stuff next week.